award-winning programme John Ronson On. And tonight, the journalist and writer John Ronson investigates the fear of flying. The writer Vicky Cohen has a pathological fear of flying. I started being a bit frightened of flying probably 10 or 12 years ago. I caught it off a friend of mine. When I was a teenager, I went on a flight with a friend who was very scared of flying and she spent the whole trip telling me about, you know, awful details of accidents. And by the time I got off at the other end, I was frightened of flying. You know how to survive a plane crash. I know this because a friend of mine made a documentary about it. Apparently the people who die in a plane crash, I mean, this is presuming it's the kind of plane crash where some die and some survive, is the people who sort of assume crash positions and sit there and wait to be told to get off the plane, like in an orderly fashion. Statistically, they're the ones that die. The ones that survive are the ones who run over the heads of the people who are doing that and get out first. Really? How very Darwinist. What I'm imagining when I'm flying along is a massive fire explosion, or at least not an immediate fire explosion, some kind of terrible warning, something where the captain actually says there's going to be a fiery explosion, there's nothing you can do for the next sort of 15 minutes. Of course, this did actually happen to people on the Swiss air flight, New York-Geneva, the cabin filled with smoke, and they flew along in the dark with smoke, with screaming engines, sort of 40 minutes before they crashed. And when they crashed... You know, the brace position wouldn't have helped anybody there. People say to me sometimes, you know, you have to get perspective on it. You have to think, you look at other people who are frightened of mice. It's just the same. And I say, well, it's not the same, is it? Because a mouse is not actually going to kill you under any circumstances at all. You're not going to be inside a mouse when it explodes. No. It was actually my fear of flying counsellor who said that to me. When I caught this fear of flying, I went to see a fear of flying counsellor, and that was one of his theories about the mice. He said to you, you're not going to be inside a mouse when it explodes. No, he didn't actually say that, but he did say that I had to think of it like somebody else's mouse phobia. I don't know if that's the correct mm. Greek or Latin term, mouse phobia, but that's how he said I had to imagine it. I didn't really agree, but otherwise he was, he was very good, you know, he pretty much cured it. So how long did you go and see the Fear of Flying counsellor for? Well, just for two or three weeks, because he then died in a plane crash. So you went to see a Fear of Flying counsellor, and he, after two weeks, he cured you, and then he died in a plane crash? Yes, quite quickly he sort of cured the fear. What kind of plane did he...? It was a light plane, and sometimes people say, oh, well, you know, so then it's not really ironic at all. I say it is. I mean, obviously, light planes are... I'm laughing about it, it's terrible. I can see the black comedy even as my psychological relationship with flying is ruined forever. But it was a light plane, just him and another passenger. And, of course, in theory, they're slightly more dangerous than huge passenger aircraft. But I say, my fear of flying counsellor died in a plane crash. That's as ironic as I need it to be. When you get on a plane now, do you remember the good advice that he offered you? Or or do you remember the fact that he died in a plane crash? Well... For, for a couple of years after that, I really didn't fly at all. But, no, I try not to think about him at all. I still have written down, you know, the things he gave me to think about. It was to do with deep breathing and during turbulence you were meant to think that you were in a cab going over a cobbled street, no more dangerous. Than that. But I don't like thinking about these things because that train of thought only leads to one destination, Crash Central. So I try not to go through the exercises. I try and just watch the film and think about something else. Vicky Curran. I have panicked unnecessarily in all four corners of the globe. If I'm abroad and I can't get my wife on the phone, I assume she's fallen down the stairs. She's dead at the bottom of the stairs. However, 
I think that fear of flying is just stupid. You'd have to be nuts to be afraid of flying. And being fixated on your own death, that's nuts too. Here's the comedian, Danny Robbins. I'm scared of death in, in a way that dominates my life. My trouble is I don't remember I'm going to die. I, I just never forget. So, you're going to like a festival of the dead? I'm going to go to a festival uh, in a place called Las Nieves in Spain, near to the border of Portugal. It's a festival of near-death experience. Um, anyone who's had a, a near-death experience in the uh, previous year is eligible to be paraded through the streets in a coffin. You know, you could have sort of electrocuted yourself or just missed a, a chainsaw lopping down over your head. It's just that you, you have to have come close to that, that boundary between living and dying. And what's your purpose for wanting to go to sort of conquer your own fear of death, presumably, by meeting people who nearly died? I guess, you know, I'm someone who believes that you should confront your phobias and you should tackle them. I sometimes think it'll be a bit of a relief... Well, <laughs> maybe some other people do as well. well but uh, <laughs> so, you know, no more inadvertently bad parenting. Although I suppose it, you, you could argue that death itself is bad parenting. You know, no more having to do the VAT every three months. It's, it's quite a lot I wouldn't miss. Um, well, I don't feel like that. I, I really enjoy life. Are you scared of death at all? Yeah, I'm not that afraid of death. Uh, you know, my grandfather died when he was 96 and just I saw him like just a couple of days before he died you'll like this story it'll make you feel better Okay. I saw him just before he died and he said you know I know I'm 96 and I should be I'm, I'm paraphrasing I should be prepared for this moment but you know what I'm terrified I'm absolutely terrified and he had this look of this kind of frightened boy he looked like like a child who was being sent to see the headmaster he said something you can do can you help me and I said, ah, oh, you'll be all right. <laughs> anyway, and he died a few days later. You know when I said this story would help you? Yeah. It's not, not helped you at all, is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> Am I being cruel? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> entertaining the harsh realities. Ah, oh, you'll be fine. I'm going to say to you what I said to my grandfather. You'll be fine. And you know what's going to make it fine is that when you meet these people who nearly died in Spain they're going to say something to you that's comforting and it will make you feel better. That's my guarantee. These people who've stared death in the face will come back with something comforting to say. Danny Robbins. We'll find out how Danny gets on in Spain, how he learns and grows later in the programme. I am not afraid of flying, but I am afraid of having no legroom. Recently I was mid-air on a plane with no legroom and it was so packed and claustrophobic I let out a loud involuntary yelp. I shouted, Heel! So I understand why Mike Thexton decided to travel business class from Karachi to London one day in September 1986. It had been a gruelling trip in memory of his brother who died climbing on K2 two years earlier. Mike was tired and hungry. He'd been on the mountain... He wanted to go business class. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. I had no guilt at all, actually. I'd, I'd been to the mountain, I'd said goodbye to my brother, I, I was desperate for a decent meal, and I just wanted to be home. 
So you sat down on your business class seat. Well, I didn't even get that far. I was looking at this enormous seat and I had... Thinking what? Thinking that's an enormous seat. There wasn't even anybody sitting in the seat next to it, so I'd got these two enormous seats. So were you thinking this is going to be like the best flight of my I was, life? I was. I had heard this rumour that you get free drink in, in business class. You know, one time I went business class on Air Zimbabwe and, oh, yes. uh, and as I sat down, they asked me uh, to fill out, like, they sent, like, a visitor's book. Really? To say what you thought of the experience. Before you flew? Yeah, exactly. So all I could write was, you know, excellent sitting down. Yes. <laughs> anyway, that's but, besides the point. Okay, so yeah. you were looking at your seat. I look at the seat, I put my bag on the seat and opened the bag to get a book out. And while I was still rummaging in the bag, I heard a noise in the second doorway, I looked up and there was a man struggling with one of the flight attendants. And this man had a gun, a pistol, in his hand. Um, Do you know what would have gone through my mind at that moment? Just putting myself... What would, have, what would have gone through your mind? They're going to hate me more than the other people because I'm in business class. <laughs> mm, yes, I... Uh, no, I think I didn't even have a thought that logical at right. that moment. It's just blank. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away they cleared us out of the business class. I got downgraded after about five minutes of this flight and found a different seat back in the economy and we all sat there with our hands in the air and then one of the flight attendants said, ladies and gentlemen, the group responsible apologise for the inconvenience caused. Their argument is not with you, but if you make any sudden movements, you will be shot. There were 390 passengers. Mike did what I think a lot of people would do in his situation... He glanced around the cabin, looking for people who the hijackers might want to kill first, before him. I was sitting next to an American couple, and I have to say that I thought they would be in front of me. And I think everybody was looking around and thinking, who's in front of me? And who turned out to be in front? Well, they just took somebody out of a chair, took him forward and shot him. There's a chap called Rajesh Kumar. He was a, an Indian by birth, but an American by passport. A little bit later, they collected in all the passports, and at that point I thought that the Americans would be first, but actually they, they called my name. What, over the tannoy? Over the tannoy. So I stood up and walked up to the front of the plane. And at the front of the plane, by the front door, there was the leader of the terrace with a Kalashnikov and four flight attendants sitting in, in two pairs of seats behind the door. And he'd got my passport in his hand. What was coming over the tannoy at this point? Just silence. They always played this sort of plinky-plonky music before you took off. And we discovered that it's on an endless loop. And we had 12 hours of The Entertainer and New York, New York, just playing again and again and what, again. Just those two? Well, those are the two that I remember. But uh, if you yeah. play me a selection of songs and I start shaking, then you probably have found one that, that was on. Start spreading the news I'm leaving today. I tried to say something to him like, please, my brother died in the mountains, my parents have no one else, and he just waved a hand as if to say, I'm too busy for that. New York, New York. So were you in a situation whereby you had to come to terms with your imminent death? Yes, that's right. And how does one go about doing that? Well... I think the first thing that struck me, I was just felt terribly sad for my parents because I knew that they'd lost my brother in the mountains and it only really occurred to me ages later that they must have not wanted me to go to Pakistan to say goodbye to him. Uh, they must have felt that it would be too dangerous and I wouldn't come back. And they'd never said anything because they knew it was important to me to go. And 
in my mind I tried to say goodbye to them and I tried to pass a message to them through the flight attendants just whispered to them no please tell my family that I love them very much and on that day that actually made me feel better saying goodbye and I don't know that it would today I uh, now that I have a wife I have two daughters the idea of saying goodbye and knowing that I wouldn't see them again I would I think I would not be able to face it The next thing I, I did was to say some prayers. And it was a strange thing because I, I didn't believe in God. And I was saying some prayers. And I saw this with a very clear vision. I thought, if there is a God who is actually listening to me saying these prayers, then God would know that I don't believe in God. And um, be annoyed. Absolutely, that God would be very annoyed if I made some promises that I wasn't going to keep or wasn't able to keep. It is said that he can be vengeful. Well, so I believe, so I believe. Did you, by the way, make any promises to God? Um, I did make some promises to God, and those are between me and God. This programme, I should say, is on at 11 o'clock at night, so it's quite possible that only God's listening. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's still between me and God. Sorry. And so I sat at the front of the plane for 12 hours or so during that day, quite sure that there would come a moment when they would say, we're not getting anywhere, we're going to shoot you now. Mike was at the front, a gun pointed at him for 15 hours, when suddenly the music stopped and the lights went out. The plane was getting darker and darker and they were shouting to each other. They'd positioned themselves around the plane. And once it had got completely dark, there was just this bang. They threw six hand grenades around the the cabins. But then they opened fire with automatic weapons from the front of the plane. Who were they trying to shoot? They just decided to do what they'd been waiting all day to do. And they just let fly with automatic weapons into the mass of passengers in front of them. completely randomly? Completely randomly, it was dark. And there was a burst of gunfire from the front, one from the back, one from the front, one from the back. And then all I remember is it was quiet, and I got my head up enough to see on the other side of the plane, in the darkness, there was a different colour of darkness, and it was door-shaped, and I thought, somebody's got the door open over there. And I got out on the wing... And I had this brilliant idea that I would slide off the back of the wing, dangle on my fingertips, and drop the few remaining feet to the ground. This is a jumbo jet, and in the darkness I had forgotten quite how high those wings are. It's like jumping off the roof of a house. And you have that sort of just a little moment thinking, this is taking longer than I expect. (laughs) And then, bang, (laughs) land in a heap on the ground. In all, 20 people died and 100 people were injured. The hijackers tried mingling with the passengers in the terminal, but that didn't work and they were all arrested. The leader will spend the rest of his life at the Supermax prison in Colorado alongside the Unabomber and the Shoe Bomber and the 20th 9-11 hijacker. So how are you getting on planes now? (laughs) I'm all right getting on planes. Uh, I always know where the emergency exits are. I always know how to open the doors. And did anything good possibly come from this in any way? Did it give you a sort of new understanding about how to enjoy life or anything like that? I think it gave me a very well-developed sense of proportion as to what is important and what is not important. 
and in comparison to simply being alive, most things are not very important. Pack up, let's fly away. Mike Thexton. He wrote a book about the hijack called What Happened to the Hippie Man. He's an accountant now, specialising in VAT. His story won't be comforting to Danny Robbins, I think, because its moral is that everything is fine in life except death, and there's nothing at all good to be said about death. I've arrived in the small town of As Nieves on the border of Spain and Portugal. I'm heading out of town, up a very steep hill towards the church of Santa Marta de Ribateme, who is the patron saint of near-death experiences. We're inside the church now, and four guys have just lifted a coffin up, um, acting as talebearers, and um, there's a woman inside the coffin. There's something very, very strange about seeing a moving body inside a coffin. I remember I, I actually had to carry my grandfather's coffin at his funeral, and a coffin is an incredibly heavy thing to carry, and these <laughs> coffins also weren't designed to have living, moving people in, so it's quite precarious as they make their way out, just trying to keep the person in the coffin. In the immortal words of the footballer Ian Rush when he moved from Liverpool to Juventus, it's like being in a foreign country. Nobody here speaks English. But thankfully, um, I have managed to team up with Hal Llewellyn, who's an English journalist based in Madrid, and he's going to start translating for me. We're just outside the church now, and there's a lady walking along on her knees with a stick. Um, she's doing this to give thanks to the saint. How many times have you nearly died? Several times. Really? That sounds unlucky. What, what happened to her, though? How did she nearly die? She, she was bitten by a snake. Bitten by a snake? Uh, what happened at that moment? Did, did, you, did you see a light? Did... The, the snake's tongue came out and bit you? Wow. That, that sounds horrible. Another time was her liver. Her liver. So, so she's nearly died several times. She's had a snake bite, uh, problems with her liver, something wrong with her leg. See, I, I felt a little shiver down my spine when she was describing that. Did, did she actually, was she actually looking down at herself? You felt you were outside your body. She was scared. She likes being alive a lot. Yeah, she's been, yeah. That's how I feel. I don't want to die. I'm terrified. I feel quite weird now. It's a really hot day, but I kind of feel this kind of mixture of kind of sweaty forehead and kind of shiver down my spine. And being here, I feel awkward and strange. And ooh. I'm with Jose Gonzalez now, who's the chairman of the uh, committee that organises the pilgrimage. Um, Jose, I have a great fear of death, and um, I was worried that my plane would crash on the way over or my car would crash. I I was worried that in in coming here, something bad might happen to me. Everybody is scared of death, and nobody's free from an accident. An accident can happen to anybody at any time. The important thing is to have confidence in, in faith. He's given an example of a plane crash a few years ago in Madrid uh, where he thinks it was an English person who survived the crash and converted himself to Catholicism. Okay. Jose, gracias. 
<risa> what, what did Hefe say? Hombre, ten fe en Dios. Let's see if today you convert to Catholicism. Por lo menos en Dios hay fe en el fe. Vale, venga. Gracias. I just feel worse now. That's one more thing to worry about. Not only am I worrying about death, I'm now worrying about not having faith either. I feel depressed. <risa> Now, actually, having seen the people who've been inside the coffin and seen how upset they are by the experience, and seen there's one girl who's just absolutely distraught sitting there, that's scaring me again. That's thinking if, if what these people have experienced is so upsetting and so terrifying, then maybe, maybe death is something to be frightened of. So, okay, so, so they were at the point of death, it was frightening. They were in a lot of pain, and none of them wanted to die at that moment. No. And none of them felt like a, a great sense of peace, going into a tunnel, seeing a kind of crystal city up above the clouds, none of that. No, I mean, do you remember that thing you said to me before I went off? You went, you'll be all right. You, you told me the story about your grandfather and your words to him before he died, well, you'll be okay. And I really thought somebody might echo that advice when I went over there, that, you know, it's fine, you don't need to worry about it, it's fine. None of them did? No one did, no. Danny Robbins. This programme has turned out to be unexpectedly miserable and nihilistic, so I wanted to try and end it with something optimistic. And I think we found it in Anders Sandberg. He's an Oxford-based researcher with a PhD in computational neuroscience. Since the age of six, Anders has been working on finding a way to postpone death, maybe even postpone it forever, and he thinks he's just about there. I was maybe six or seven years old when I realized that I wanted to know everything. And uh, immediately I realized that I'm going to need a bigger brain. Uh, everything? Uh, yes, everything. Did you talk to your parents about your, your quest for everything? A little bit, but uh, and they just generally nodded and said, well, there is an encyclopedia there, you can read it. And I did. <laughs> uh, and was that not enough? Did you think it's going to be more than that? Uh, oh, yes. Oh, yes. Especially when I started discovering that the encyclopedia didn't know everything. There was uh, things I knew that wasn't in the book. So I started realizing that, oh, it might even be wrong about things. So what was the moment you decided to really dedicate your life to uh, postponing death? Postponing death became more and more important as I realized that it would put a serious crimp in the project of understanding the universe. So I think over the last 10 years, it has really grown on me. Anders' first attempts at postponing death took the form of a reduction in his daily calorie intake. But he realised that the most that would give him was an extra couple of years. He had his sights set higher than that. So his next step was signing up to a cryonics firm. Do they freeze all of you or just your, just your head? It depends on how much you pay. I'm going for just the head because right. I, I'm a brain person. Where will you be? Well, this would be in boring Scottsdale, Arizona. <laughs> so... If you get really, you're about to die, do you have to just jump on a plane to Arizona? Yeah, which means that if I get run over by a truck, well, in that case, it's pretty unlikely that I'm going to be suspended. Right. It won't be a pleasant flight if you're that close to death. Mm, no, not really. Uh, go you business can... class. I guess at that point, yes. I don't really feel that I need to save the money for the funeral or anything. So going business class seems to be the right thing of doing. Yeah. And of course, not skimping on the champagne. <laughs> 
But now Anders believes that there's something even more foolproof than cryonics, a potentially surefire way to postpone death forever. It's a way to scan the human brain and upload the whole thing, memories, consciousness, everything, onto a computer. The idea is you freeze the brain, you slice it up into thin slices, you scan them with a microscope. You use software to figure out what's connected to what, turn that into a simulation and run it on a supercomputer. So, okay, so then if we are, as you obviously presume we are, we are our brains, does that mean once you've successfully done that, you'll come to life inside a computer? You'll be cognizant inside a computer? Uh, if my philosophical assumptions are right, that would work. And I do believe that we could turn ourselves into sentient software. Are you not concerned that if this works... And you're really working towards the possibility of this actually working in real life, aren't you? Yeah. Are you not slightly concerned that, you know, it works perfectly, somebody wakes up, they die, and they wake up, and they're inside a computer, and then they're stuck, and it's, like, unbelievably depressing? (laughs) Yep. That's a possibility that it might be a bad thing to do. But in a few years, when we do a real scan of a real mouse, I think uh, we will have to think carefully about should we be subjecting that mouse to pain. How how will you know if it's worked on the mouse? Well, uh, imagine that you take a mouse and you train it to run a maze. And then you freeze it, scan its brain, and run the simulated mouse in a simulated maze. If it now still remembers that maze and, well, behaves in the original way, then I think we have a good reason to believe that, yes, this is starting to work. But you can't really test this until you uh, scan a person and ask them, are you feeling yourself? And how would the person reply? Uh, Well, if a a person kind of curses and says, of course I'm feeling myself, I am myself. And then the Can you get is, me out of this box? Yeah. Uh, at that point, I think we would be making real progress. They'd have like, iTunes to, to kind of listen to songs in there. Well, you can't really run a brain without anything else. You would need a simulated body and a bit of simulated environment. So the idea is that they wouldn't just wake up and they'll be inside a box and, and they'll look around and what they'll see is circuits. The, the idea is that they'll wake up and they'll be in a simulated world that you've created, yeah. like, like Second Lives. Yeah, uh, and that of course shows an interesting problem vulnerability, uh, because they would be in an extremely vulnerable position uh, to the person who's running the computer. He could literally do anything to them. Yeah. So it's a good idea to figure out how far away are we from this, so we can actually do some serious thinking before it has happened. Well, how far away do you think well, you are? My best estimates right now would say mid-century. But imagine that we were pouring a lot of money into it right now. I think we could have it done by 2013, perhaps. A big problem, of course, is that a lot of the the richest and most powerful people in the world, the kind of people who could afford to, to be the guinea pigs, are pretty kind of dysfunctional, crazy, mean people. <laughs> You know where the sort of evil rich congregate? Uh, it's going to be like Dubai or, or Marbella. <laughs> <laughs> then you're going to have a Dubai and uh, emulated people wringing their hands uh, how the property values in cyberspace have been going down since everybody started moving in. Uh, I'm more worried about the kind of general economic implications. If you can start copying human capital, that is economic plutonium. It would be economically something like a new agricultural revolution. And that is something we need to figure out long before we get anywhere close to this technology. And how confident are you that this scanning, this immortality through scanning the brain onto a computer will actually work? I think I would give it perhaps 25% chance of working. Is that it? Yeah. And maybe there is 10% chance that cryonics works. What about heaven? 
Uh, I would put a very low probability on that. Uh, probably 10 to the minus 10 or something like that. Uh, I'm not very religious. Now you've put it into context, I think 25% is actually quite good. <laughs> it's the best we're going to get, right? Yeah. John Ronson on Fear of Flying was presented by the writer John Ronson. It was produced by Laura Parfit and Simon Jacobs. Tomorrow night, we've the first in a new series of weird tales inspired by H.P. Lovecraft's stories of magical rites and forbidden lore. When a woman's brother-in-law is killed in a car crash, feeling maudlin, she rings his mobile phone just to hear his voice. The next day, he rings her back. A weird tale tomorrow night at 11. In just a few moments, we'll find out what happened today in Parliament. But first, if science is what you're into, pay close attention. So, you want to be a scientist. Quentin Cooper, on the search for BBC Radio 4's Amateur Scientist of the Year. We are looking for ideas, flashes of inspiration, and perhaps we can introduce you to someone who can help that half-baked idea get fully baked, get sliced up, and you really will have the best thing since sliced bread. Find out more on Material World this Thursday.